0: I think at this point, it's good to know that it's all on me. I have the best partners that I could possibly have in mixed and men's. I couldn't ask for anything more. And going into 2024, I know that it's all on me. I have to be the best player I can be because it's there's no blaming of partners there's no it's like i'm so lucky to have these partners there's so many players who are like oh well i wish i had a better partner i wish i had a better, especially in mixed i wish i had a better partner and i have none of those issues i have great partners i'm playing all the ppas i'm getting to play these great events and it's just i'm lucky to i feel lucky to be in the position that i'm in to even go out there and play okay so we have second solo podcast um the last one was given good reviews which was a little surprising to me and we decided to do it one more time maybe we'll do it again uh we've got a few questions from fans and i think we're going to probably do it for 20 minutes we're probably not going to do it any more than that and um yeah we're just going to take some questions and i think for the next one if we want to do another one of these let me know and you can leave your questions in the comments and if they're within reason i will answer them so that's where we're at right now i'm going to get into it our first question is on overrules and the challenge system in professional pickleball which is a good question because i think that there are some issues um so anna and i played against ben and annalee in the first round we were up 10-8 in the first game and ben and annalee missed a return deep i think it was i think it was maybe this far past the baseline at least what we thought it was Ben and Anna Lee thought that it was in they challenged it okay at least they tried to but they had two or sorry they had used two of their timeouts they had no timeouts left okay and if you have no timeouts left if you've used both of them you cannot challenge anything you you have no challenges which is different from other sports right I think in the NFL or in the NBA if you use up all your timeouts you still have your challenge right and if you use a challenge and your challenge is unsuccessful, then you lose a timeout. So it goes that way, but it doesn't go the other way. And I think in pickleball, if it was up to me and if it was my opinion, I think it would be that way because it didn't feel right that they had used both their timeouts and they weren't able to challenge that call. And there was people in the stand saying, oh, it was in whatever, you know, and, and Lee and Anna Lee thought that it was in. And that's fine for them to think that. I think they should be able to challenge it if they haven't used a challenge yet. So again, I think if you use a challenge early in the game where you have timeouts left and it is unsuccessful, you lose a timeout. That is definitely how it's supposed to be. But if you have used both of your timeouts, I don't think that that means that you shouldn't be able to challenge. And again, I know that if it's a match ending call, you can challenge. So what they deem as match ending just means if it's match point and that challenge is made, even if you have no timeouts left, you're allowed, to, you're allowed to challenge the call. But I think that it should be that way, at least if it's game ending. Um, I think it should be that way in general. But if it's game ending and it's the first game or whatever it is, as long, even if it's not match ending, it should be, should be that way. So the use of the lob as a shot and the different considerations for when to use the lob. I actually think the lob is a very valuable shot. And I don't use the lob. So I don't use the lob and I think that's mostly because I feel confident that I can generate offense off the bounce, out of the air on both sides. So I don't really think the lob is necessary for me um, in that I feel more confident in speeding up off of a regular backhand off the bounce, a regular forehand off the bounce. I think those are two of my best shots. So I don't really feel like a lob is the best use of my aggression if I wanna be offensive. But I think if you're not comfortable Speeding up off the bounce on your backhand, your form, whatever it is. I think you should be looking to add the lob. And if you go down in levels, down to four, five, four zero, oh, whatever it is, the overheads get worse and worse. And if you're playing somebody with no tennis background or no racket sport background in general, the chances that they have a good, effective overhead are very low. Right? You look at AJ Kohler, uh, Riley Newman, uh, Dylan Frazier, These guys who were not, you know, great tennis players. They're pro pickleball players and they're unbelievable pickleball players, but their overheads aren't great. And that's just the fact of the matter. I think if you didn't didn't play tennis, as most of the top pickleball players did their whole lives, basically, that overhead isn't going to be a point-ending shot. So, you know, if you look down at the 4-5 or levels, 4 levels, I think lobs can be very, very effective. And they're not the hardest shot in the world. You know, this is pickleball. There's not a lot of space between the net and the baseline it's a, obviously it's a ball that can be affected by wind. So you really have to take into account the wind. But if it's not that windy, or if you're going against the wind, which against the wind means the wind is blowing in your face. So the wind is blowing the ball back towards you. I would go for the lob and at least try to, try to build that shot as a weapon, because if there was one shot that I think that in 2024 is going to become way more prevalent and it's going to be, A pretty commonplace shot, especially down 4-0, 3-5, it's going to be the lob. I don't really know why the offensive lob isn't used more than it is, and I think that it's a shot that people can learn. It's a simple low to high motion. It's not too different from a drop, actually, in the technique that you would hit it with. So a drop, you're going low to high and you're pushing it up, In a lob, you're doing the same thing. Maybe you're getting a little lower with your legs. Obviously, you're trying to get it up and over your opponent. I think for the most part, you would want to lob cross court. I think that obviously there's more court there. There's more space to hit into. And I just think that in 2024, the lob is going to become way more used. And in the pro game, it's a little more dangerous. I think it'll maybe get a little more used in the pro game. I think in 2023, we saw more lobs than we did in 2022. But I think in 2024, we'll see a few more, but I think we'll see a lot more in Rec Pickleball and at, you know, 5 O's and below. So uh, last thing on the lobs also is if you look at a 4-5 or five level player or four a 4 level player, not only are their overheads not as potent as a professional player, it's also a lot harder for them to get up to the kitchen. So if you lob Ben Johns or Colin Johns, maybe you'll get over their head but there's also a 90% chance that they're going to get back up to the kitchen. So is it really worth it to lob them too often? Maybe not. But a four or five, if you can get a good lob over a four or head, head, it's not easy to get back up to the kitchen. And I think it's, I think it's an effective play. Uh, so that's just my personal opinion. Let's see. What have I learned about the transition game? Well, I'm still learning about the transition game. Uh, I think that's not the strongest part of my game. Uh, I think that, My transition transition game has improved a lot this year and it's the result of a lot of work on it, a lot of repetitions. And I think that the main thing I learned about the transition game is that you have to get low with your legs and low with your paddle on defense and your resets don't have to be perfect. I think in January of this this year, I was really bad in transition, probably the worst player in transition in the Premier League. I think somebody told me that. I think they actually were right. And I think... A, main, a big part of that was I didn't understand how to be standing in the transition zone. I was standing straight up. And when you're in transition, you're hitting a fifth or a seventh shot. People are going at your feet or at the very least at your knees. And it's a lot easier to hit a ball that's at your feet if your legs are you a wide base. You're standing basically as low as you can comfortably stand, getting as low as you can possibly get within reason. I think that's the way to do it. You see, there's different ways to do it, right? You see Colin Johns. Collins kind of standing straight up and not really using his legs. I think he's just a different case. I think that guy's just special. I, I really think he's just different because if you look at the best players in transition, they're getting low. You know, Catherine's getting really low. Ben's getting really low. Uh, these, these guys that are great in transition are not standing straight up and their paddles are also very low. I think the closer you get to the baseline, the lower your paddle should be when you're in transition because if you're at the baseline and your paddle's like up here, you're covering, anything you're covering is going out, right? Anything that goes higher than your knee level, if you're standing two feet in front of the baseline is going out. So why would your paddle be anywhere above your knees? I think that was the main thing I learned. Um, I got my paddle lower and I stopped trying to hit perfect resets. I think if you're playing somebody that has a tough time finishing the point also, or doesn't have a necessarily potent backhand out of the air, forehand out of the air, whatever it is, you can just hit a less than perfect, but low linear reset if it's if you're in a tough spot and you can give yourself a better chance at a seventh or a ninth, you know, another shot, then you can maybe drop that one in and make it bounce. Um, so I think I was too focused on trying to make it bounce and hitting some higher resets that ended up not bouncing in the first place instead of saying, okay, I'll hit some lower linear, just straight through and I'm not going to get to the kitchen right away with that fifth But if I'm in trouble, it's almost like a low drive, like a mix of a drive and a drop. When I'm in trouble, that'll give me a better chance to hit a drop with a seventh or a ninth. So that was the thing I learned. It's kind of a game within itself transition. Unless you're Colin Johns and you just drop everything directly into the kitchen. I don't have that uh, in my arsenal. So, okay, hitting of the serve, whether or not we should switch to a drop serve. It's a good one. Um, I think we should not switch to a drop serve, and I'm not saying that because I was voted as the person with the best serve or the hardest serve, which I was. Not to just you know make you guys aware that they did this poll, anonymous poll of the professional pickleball, whatever, and I was voted the best serve. And um, not that that's has anything to do with this. I just wanted to let you guys know. And uh, I think that one thing that you have to know uh is the drop serve if pros are doing it i don't really think it looks cool i've seen it it it, for optics it doesn't look great and i think it's important for pickleball to try to at least look as athletic as it can be because we've already got four men up there dinking for most of the match it doesn't look great i think the drop serve it just doesn't look good and i think that having aggressive serving makes it so that there's some variance in the product that people are watching so if everybody's just pushing their serves in, pushing their returns in, getting to the kitchen every single time, then these long dink rallies that are already bound to happen are happening even more often. And we're watching the same point over and over and over. So I think that there is a benefit to being able to hit the big serve and the drive, maybe one out of every three points. That's what happens. Just a big serve, big drive, and then a you know finishing post fifth, right? Something that's more exciting for fans to watch. And I think that's especially important in men's doubles in men's doubles, we need things that are exciting because it's very, very repetitive in nature. And that does not, you know, it's not necessarily conducive to a product that people want to watch. I think the most repetitive things are actually the things that people don't want to watch. They like excitement, variance, different things happening. So I think that you should be able to serve big, but I don't think you should be able to serve as big as we're currently serving. Um, I think, you know, we played against Deco this weekend and I think, um, Again, this is not an issue that I have with Deckel. If, if they're not calling his serve, he by all means should be hitting the serve hard. And he's serving, I think, pretty high, but I don't think that he should... Uh, you know, this is nothing against Declan. If they're not... This is totally against the refs and the PPA for not calling it. I've always tried to serve hard, but with you know within legality. And I think that if they're not calling the serves, then I don't think there's a reason why I wouldn't try to serve a little higher and a little higher and try to push that limit. So... That has nothing, and I think Ben's serve might have been a little high. Uh, I think that it's just something that needs to be regulated, and it's not on the players. I'll say it one more time, because if they're not going to stop you from using a white paddle, why wouldn't you use a white paddle, right? I used a white paddle, so I'm not playing the moral high ground card here, right? I, would, I wouldn't I would do that, and I'm not saying that Decal and Ben are serving too high and that that's the wrong thing to do because if they're not calling it, you should do it. I think it's totally on the PPA and it's totally on the refs to become more strict with calling it and making sure that there is a very clear, um, just being more focused in terms of knowing exactly what's legal and exactly what's not, because there's even been times where players have exaggerated the height of the serve in response to being annoyed by somebody else's serve being too high. And then it still doesn't get cold because the refs are just not focusing on it, I think. I don't think it's being focused on when they teach it to the refs. Um, So there has been some interesting ideas, like maybe every serve has to be below the height of the net. So that controls for height, right? That means that Jaume Martinez can serve from here if it's below the height of the net, right? And then Deckel and I have to serve from down there. And we're all serving from the same height. So that could be, uh, I think that could be a solution. But ultimately, I think the solution is just to make sure that we're very, very uh, strict on it. And there can be certain different parts of the body that we use to make it easier for the refs to call it. Um, maybe there has to be an arc. So you can't be serving completely linear. If there's if it's completely linear, that is not a legal serve. Um, so I think there's a lot of different ways to go about this. And... Um, I think we have to address it because as as long as something happens, we're good because I don't think it can continue the way that it is right now, because I think pickleball wasn't meant for the serve to have to be a weapon. That was never the intention of the serve. That's why it's hit underhand. And again, I don't mind the serve being a little bit of a weapon, but it shouldn't be a game breaking weapon that takes over an entire match um, because I don't think that's in the nature of the sport. And that's coming from me and my serve has broken plenty of games, especially mixed doubles. So obviously I'm not biased. My serve is big and I'm telling you, it should not be a weapon. So if that means anything, um, yeah, I think that should be, should be looked at. So let's see my backhand ink. Um, so my backhand ink has gotten a lot of attention, a lot of questions. I think more people have asked me or talked to me about my backhand dink than any shot combined of mine. Maybe because I don't have that many notable shots, right? Outside of the two handed backhand dink. Um I think that I was probably the first person to dink with two hands like I do. Uh I think there were other players, especially on the women's side that dinked with two hands, but they didn't really dink the way I did. I really get low and I really just kind of use my whole body and not my arms. And I don't know if I would teach it the way that I hit the backhand dink. I think that I am sort of a weird player in a lot of ways. And I think that it's funny. The way I taught myself to hit the backhand dink was I was always dinking really well in rec games and with two hands. And then I would go and I would play a match, and for whatever reason, I was interlocking my hands. It's weird to hit a two-handed backhand and pickleball because you're not using the whole grip if you have big hands like me, right? If you're if you can fit two hands on the grip, then that's different, but I can't, and a lot of players can't. I have to interlock my hands. And I would get tight, and I would just not hit a good two-handed backhand dink. It was, it was bad. My whole dinking in general was bad. So I decided, I did this with my serve too. I decided I'm going to train and practice this hours and hours and hours with you know, pretending like I am as tight as I can possibly be. I'm going to imitate myself in the tightest moment of my life pretending like my life is on the line. I'm not going to try to be relaxed. I'm going to give up on that. I'm just going to try to be as tight as I can possibly be and train that way. And then when I go out there for a tournament, I'm fine because if I'm tight, that's okay. That's how I practiced. And I did the same thing with my serve. I was always pushing in my serve. My serve would be, I had the softest serve ever. And it's funny because now I have like one of the hardest. I decided, okay, I'm not going to do the motion. I'm not going to hit this big swinging forehand motion because I get tight. You watch my serve, I'm literally imitating tightness. It's like I put my hand under the ball and I'm just, that's it. It's the tightest thing you've ever seen is my serve. You go look at it, it's like, oh, of course, of course you get hit that when he's tight. What would possibly change? Nothing. So same thing with my backhand dink. I literally would imitate myself like I'm so tight, and I would just dink over and over. And the next thing you know, I stopped missing the shot and it became like my best shot. And it's just, it's so weird and funny how that turned out because that's actually, it's, it's kind of a funny story and that's how I did it. So that's all I can really tell you about my backhand dink is it's all left hand. Really. It's not, you know, everything is coming from the left and I'm pretty good with my left hand. I beat Grant Bond in a game of skinny singles, my left. I'll tell everybody that as long as I can remember. Uh, But I think it's, it's mostly left. It comes from the left and it comes from the shoulders. And I think another thing about backhands that, goes overlooked is that you should be using, in my opinion, more legs on your backhand than you do on your forehand. Well, why is that? I think you have less leverage, right? Most people would say they could hit a forehand as hard as they can harder than they could hit a backhand as hard as they can. Most people. And that's because there's more leverage here than there is here. So how do you counteract that? More legs, more shoulders. And that's what I do. If you watch me hit a backhand, I could hit the backhand pretty hard. It's because I'm fully committed to my shoulders and my legs and I'm swinging and it's all unit turn. And I think that's, that's the way to do it. Um, it's not going to come from your arms and it's definitely not going to come from your right arm. It's going to come from your left arm. If you're a righty, and it's going to come from your unit turn and your legs. So I think those are the, those are the main things. Wow. I'm starting to lose my voice guys. This is, this is a physical thing to do. Talk to yourself for, for 20 minutes. I mean, actually I do that all the time, but, uh, Anyways, let's, let's see what else we have here. Um, well, nah, no, that's, that's probably, can't talk about that. Well, here's one, here's a good one. How much fun did I have playing with Matt? I had a lot of fun playing with Matt. I think me and Matt, we got to the semis. Uh, we made it out of group play. We lost to Riley and Thomas um, for the last time. And uh, I think it was, it was cool to play with him. I think he's the perfect partner for me. I think that his hands are so good. He's so good in transition. He's not going to make too many mistakes at all. Um, I think at this point, it's good to know that it's all on me. I have the best partners that I could possibly have in mixed and men's, basically. I couldn't ask for anything more. And going into 2024, I know that it's all on me. I have to be the best player I could be because it's there's no blaming of partners. There's no... It's like, I'm so lucky to have these partners. There's so many players who are like, oh, well, I wish I had a better partner. I wish I had a better, especially in mixed. I wish I had a better partner. Um, And I have none of those issues. I have great partners. I'm playing all the PPAs. I'm getting to play these great events. And it's just, I'm lucky to, I feel lucky to be in the position that I'm in to even go out there and play. You know, I'm not really as focused on it. Well, if I don't win, I'm going to be so upset. I just feel lucky to, be able to play with Anna Bright and Matt Wright for 2024. It sounds a little corny, but I think it's it's really a, it's not something that I'm going to take for granted because it's not like I'm a whole lot better than a lot of these players that don't have the luxury of having those partners. I mean, I've only been playing for two years. I have confidence in my game, but I don't think I'm some sort of, uh, you know, I, I just, I'm not taking it for granted and I'm super happy about it. Matt's also one of my good friends on tour. One of my few, I'm not really the most, like, uh, I don't have too many close relationships on the tour. I think Matt is one of those. And uh, Anna is one of those. And I think that shows how loyal of, a par- loyal of a partner I am, right? Anna Bright Matt Wright. Those are my two friends on the tour, I would say, mostly. So um, I think that's something that's very cool is, is how lucky I am to have these partnerships. And uh, I hope I can keep them. Let's hope they don't drop me. So that's all. I'm done talking to myself. Um, any questions that you have, want me to go over any topics, let me know in the comments for the next one. Thank you.